listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, if you have a Bible, let's get to it. Genesis chapter 21 is where we find ourselves today as we're, we're plodding through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Been in it for several months, took a little break, looked at Titus. Back into Genesis this summer. We'll be in Genesis for the balance of, of August. And then we're going to take a break at the beginning of August. And for the rest of the fall, September through the end of the year, we're going to look at the most important chapter in the whole Bible, I think. Uh, I know I'm given to hyperbole. I know that. I get that. Romans chapter 8 is what we'll be in in this fall. And then we'll get back into Genesis, Lord willing, in the, in the coming year. Before I do that, as you're finding... Genesis 21. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, as we always mention, you're welcome to use the Bible that's in the rack in front of you. We'd love for you to keep that Bible if you don't have one. And you can find Genesis chapter 21 and just the first few pages of that, of that Bible. Keep it if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you. As you're finding Genesis 21, let me, let me just mention a bittersweet uh, Sunday. This is the last Sunday for one of our families. It has been just pillars of our church for the last several years. They've come to us via Fort Benning. And Scott and Gina Caro are moving on to the nation of Texas, where they are going to be stationed with, uh, with the Army at Fort Bliss. Is that right? Uh, down there in uh, kind of West Texas. And so Scott and Gina are right there. Raise your hands, guys. Uh, if you know Scott and Gina, they have uh, came to us with three lovely biological children and during their time here adopted their fourth child little Sawyer Moses uh, a precious little baby boy that is a gift from God to them and has been to us and they have been community group leaders and on our adoption team and just really involved in every facet of the church and uh, they are moving on and we are very sad to see them go they have been just uh, wonderful encouragements to to us as a congregation and we love you guys and, um, you know, I remember being in the Army. Anything can happen in the Army. Sometimes orders get changed at the very last minute. And we're, we're, we're still praying for some strange bureaucratic snafu, which is not unheard of in the Army, uh, for you to maybe just stay around for a little while longer. But then please do give Scott and Gina a hug. And uh, please do pray for them as they look for another church and that God would use them as a couple uh, for his glory at Fort Bliss. Uh, we got an update from our Uganda youth team. They're doing well. Youth mission team in Uganda, they'll be home Tuesday, I think, Lord willing, so pray for their, for their travel back. Um, things are really going good. Kids are doing a great job there ministering in the orphanage. And as we read this chapter, uh, I'm just burdened again, as I have been for, for the last few weeks, for just our world in particular. In a moment as I pray, I just can't help but think of Christians in Iraq right now that are under the threat of this horrific, satanic terrorist organization that is threatening them with death if they do not convert to Islam. As we read this passage and as we pray in just a moment, let's pray. And as we even sang that song a moment ago, Jesus, our firm foundation, uh, it's easy to sing on a Sunday morning in the deep south where we live in comfort and security. That's a whole nother thing to be able to sing that truth with gusto if you're facing persecution and death. And so as we open up God's word and as we 
think about the work of God as as we think about Jesus' finished work, as we consider the fact that we have been saved from God's wrath, for God's glory, by God alone, as we realize that there are people in this room even who very likely are not trusting in Christ, I pray, pray with me in just a moment that God would, would open up our eyes, that Christians would be humbled and our affections would be stirred and this wouldn't just be another sort of sleepy Sunday in the South, but that God would, would, would stir us and that God would save people even in this room right now, that he would give them life and repentance and faith and that he would be glorified and his people would be equipped and encouraged and compelled to worship Him more passionately and love Him more deeply and speak of Him more freely to an onlooking world. So pray with me. Father, as we open up Your Word now and as we, as we think about this chapter, as we think about these truths, as we celebrate the fulfillment of Your promise to Abraham, the gift of Isaac, the son, finally, after decades, the promise made has now been kept pray that it would strengthen our hearts, that it would encourage us, that we would see the gospel truths in this chapter. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world facing persecution, in particular in Iraq. Lord, would you stop this terrorist organization from carrying out their evil plans? But Lord, we know that there's something worse than death. And that is separation from you for all eternity. And so, Lord, regardless of what happens in your sovereign will, would you, would you preserve those Christians, preserve their faith more than their lives? Because we know that the sword can only take our life, but it cannot take our soul. So keep them faithful to the end. We pray for their protection. We pray now for you to show us glorious truths from your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to give you my outline up front again. It's the same as it was last week, so it's easy. Three questions. I think that's a good pattern for us again in this chapter. Three questions. What do we learn about ourselves from this chapter? What do we learn about God and his character and his sovereign will and merciful disposition towards us? And what do we learn about God's unfolding plan of redemption in Christ in Genesis 21? Well, with that, let me read this chapter that is a great celebration that we've been waiting for for the past 10 chapters that we've picked up Abraham's life in Genesis 12. The the fulfillment of the promise of the son Isaac coming through Abraham's wife, Sarah. Verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of a son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. Now, friends, this has been 25 years since Genesis 12, when Abraham was 75 and God called him to leave his father's house and to go to a land that 
he would call him and told him that he would give him descendants that would, that would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the, of, the, of the ground. And it has been 25 years, not eight chapters, 25 years since God initially promised. And now Abraham is 100 years old. And the promise has finally been fulfilled. Verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And this is a different sort of laughter. Remember a couple weeks ago when Will Hawk was preaching out of Genesis 18 and Sarah hearing the news that a son would come through her in her old age, kind of mocking, but not in a sort of like a sarcastic laugh, like, ha, God is going to use me and Abraham, this old guy. How's that going to happen? This is a joyful, sort of a play on words. It's a, it's a joyful laughter. A, a, a worshipful laughter. God has made laughter for me. In fact, that's what Isaac's name means. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So friends, this chapter is a celebration chapter. The promise that God made Abraham 25 years earlier has finally come to pass. The son has come, not through ordinary human means or through conniving with a mistress, Hagar, but as God promised, through his wife, Sarah. Verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Remember Ishmael back in Genesis chapter 16? Remember their little, their little conniving plan to try and help God fulfill his promise, which he didn't need? And they took Hagar as uh, uh, Sarah's mistress, Hagar. Abraham took her and had Ishmael, the son. So Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Again, a little play on words. This is not a worshipful laughter. This is a, a mocking laughter. So Ishmael, this little preteen older half-brother is laughing at this weaning event of his younger half-brother Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman, woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Mama she-bear is mad, right? I mean, this is, you've been, I mean, come on, don't mess with a mama and her kid. But friends, there's much more going on here than just a, a protective mama, as we'll read later. God is eliminating the threat to his promise being fulfilled through Isaac. Verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God is not only showing himself faithful to Abraham through Sarah and ultimately the promised son Isaac, but remember in Genesis 16 that he made a promise to Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar that he would be good to Ishmael and that he would bless Ishmael and that he would protect him. And God is good on that, on that promise as well. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. 
And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Think about the despair and and just the, the futility of this moment here. Verse 16. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. So again, God is not only good to his promise through Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, he's good to his promise to Hagar and Ishmael, despite the fact that that whole scenario came about because of their lack of faith in God. Verse 19, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We won't spend hardly any time on this at all, but friends, the focus of this chapter is God's faithfulness in bringing about his promise to Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac, who will become the child of promise and who has incredible significance as he points towards Christ throughout the ages and later in the New Testament. But we could spend some time just even looking at God's heart for even the outcast. He doesn't just cast Ishmael away. No, he loves even the outcast, and he has promised to care for Ishmael. God doesn't just love the church or Israel. He loves all people, and he has a heart even for the outcast, Ishmael. Well, let's keep reading into the chapter and then answer these three questions. Verse 22, changing scenes now to another interaction with Abraham and this king Abimelech. Remember? Abimelech, in the chapter previous, was the man that Abraham came upon in the desert in Genesis chapter 20. And for the second time in these eight chapters, because of his fear and cowardice, Abraham lies to this king Abimelech, saying that, you know, this lady Sarah is my sister because he feared that, that God would, or that he feared that Abimelech would, would, would kill him for his wife. And so there was this deal where in the middle of the night, God taps Abimelech on the shoulder and wakes him up with, with these words, I'm going to kill you if you touch that lady. Give her back to Abraham. That's, now, now that'll jolt you out of, out of a deep sleep, won't it? God tapping you on the shoulder saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't obey me right now. Well, that's who this Abimelech is. Remember that we read last week, and Abimelech, scared out of his wits, gives Sarah back to Abraham before he'd even touched her and says, what are you doing to me, you knucklehead? I'm paraphrasing. And so now this is Abimelech in another encounter with Abraham. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, now I think that's significant that he brings the commander of his army to meet with Abraham the second time. I mean, it didn't go so well with Abraham the first time, right? You know, I remember one time I got in a little disagreement when I was a freshman in high school with this kid. And there was going to be kind of a meeting after school to sort of settle this argument. You know what I'm talking about? Well, on 
my, the good news for me was that I had a big brother who was a senior in high school at that time who was the captain of the football team, and I just happened to have my brother with me at that meeting in case it went poorly. It went wonderfully because I had my brother with me. And I think that's what's happening here with Abimelech. It didn't go so well in chapter 20. Abraham almost got me killed. So I'm bringing my captain with me this time in case it goes south. And so Abraham, or Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. There's this acknowledgement. Look, God is obviously blessing you. I mean, you had this child at 100 years old. There's this testimony of God's grace in the life of Abraham that is sounding forth to the people around him. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So that's the, that's the issue that has brought about this little meeting in the desert. It is apparently one of Abimelech's servants sees this well that Abraham's servants dug, and so there's this property dispute over this all-important issue of water in the desert, and they're coming now to solve it. And Abimelech is understandably apprehensive because his interaction with Abraham in the chapter before was a little tense. So Abraham, in verse 27, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said in verse 30, These seven ewe lambs you, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place, therefore that place was called Beersheba, because... There both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Okay. Let's get back to these three questions and answer them and find out what this chapter has for us today. The first question, what do we learn about ourselves from this great and glorious fulfillment of the promise that we've been waiting on for the past 10 chapters? And I think we see this not just in chapter 21, but but over the course of the life of Abraham, this, this first truth under this question is that we are prone to doubt God and rely on our own means, aren't we? Isn't that really the story so far of, of Abraham and, and Sarah? Just look at the a brief history of, of Abraham since Genesis 12 when God spoke to him. So right away, God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. And what does Abraham do right after that in the same chapter? He lies about his wife being his wife to an Egyptian king because he was fearful. So you would think that God speaking to you directly would be a confidence-inducing event. But yet still, Abraham... This, this, this figure in biblical history who stands above other men, even he, great father Abraham, is filled with doubt and anxiety. Not only that, but he then uh, is, is fearful about 
the, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. He lies again about Sarah. And if we could retrace the history, which we don't have time for, of Genesis 12 through 21, we would not see God crediting Abraham because of his great faith. We would see God working with Abraham despite his lack of faith and great cowardice. And so, what should this produce in us? I, I think it is incredibly encouraging. Now, I know that I've mentioned this probably three or four times that we've been working through, through Abraham's life. But I, I think this is incredibly encouraging as I look at Father Abraham. I mean, come on, you sang the song in Sunday school, most of you. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. I mean, he's, he's, one, of, he's, in, he's one of the... I mean, he's on the varsity. He's playing on Friday nights when we look at biblical history. But the record of his life is one of, of doubt and anxiety and cowardice. Friends, that is incredibly encouraging. And then let's look at how the New Testament, how Paul interprets Abraham's life. Again, I read this a couple weeks ago, and you're going to say, Brad, you're repeating yourself, and I get that. But some of you watched the Titanic ten times. So if you can watch a movie ten times, you can hear a spiritual truth and in in a, in a, in a passage of Scripture more than once. I have watched Despicable Me at least eight times. Part of that may be because I have two young children, and part of that may just be because I thought it was a great movie. But anyway, listen to Romans 4. Listen to the way God through the Apostle Paul speaks of Abraham who has lied about his wife twice who has really for the past eight chapters been a roller coaster ride of cowardice and courage some good some bad but definitely not stellar listen how God remembers Abraham through the Apostle Paul Romans 4 verse 18 Paul writing about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope so that that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, so let's, let's stop. Either Paul, who wrote Romans, was completely unfamiliar with Genesis, which I think is unlikely, or God's disposition to Abraham, his child, who he's been gracious with, is not one of nitpicking, ah, yeah, remember in Genesis 12, after I spoke to you, you failed, you little punk. And then again, you did it in Genesis 20. And then you were, you know, that whole deal with Lot, now, nah, I mean, come on, you just, you're a wimp, you're a wimp. No, God's disposition towards Abraham is one of gracious fatherly care so that through the ages, his word about Abraham is not nitpicking about all the little times that he messed up, but he's saying, that was my man. That was my man. And he never wavered, friends. I find that incredibly encouraging. That when God and his grace through Christ looks at his people, when he looks at you and me, he doesn't remember that moment when I was fearful or lustful scared 
or idolatrous or angry. In Christ, his disposition towards us is one of a gracious fatherly disposition. Secondly, we learn about ourselves. And I think this is, we could say so much more about this little episode at the end of the chapter about Abraham's treaty with Abimelech. But I think one thing we see is that God has called us to display his grace, not just receive it. So why do we tack on this little story of Abimelech right after we read about the promise of Isaac coming? And I think it's just a reminder, amongst many other things, I think that one thing that's happening here is that God is just reminding Abraham, and is he reminding us thousands of years later as we read this, that Abraham received this promise not just for himself, But remember what God said in Genesis 12. He said that you, I am going to bless you so that through you, I can be a light to all the nations of the earth. And so God has not just elected Abraham sovereignly out of wandering in the desert so that he could just bless Abraham and pour out his love on him, but that through Abraham, he wants to be a light to the world around him. And so he, right after the fulfillment of the promise, is arranging for Abraham to meet with Abimelech so that Abraham would be a testimony of God's faithfulness to Abimelech. God wants to get the word out about his glory in the lives of his people. And he wants to do the same with us. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a beautiful verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage, against, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, Bible Belt Christians in the South need to hear this truth. God didn't save us because we're good. God saved us because he's merciful and he saves us for his glory. Not to spend the balance of our lives coming to church complaining about stuff or being grumpy about the state of the world or watching Fox News and just being miserable. Right? Not just having a a correct political stance and having a bumper sticker about don't blame me, I voted for blank. (laughs) Gun control. (laughs) He didn't save us so that we could be theologically correct, grumpy jerks. He saved us so that we, to an onlooking world, can die to ourselves and be messengers of the mercy that we've received. Do you see that? Sojourners. Sojourners on this earth, not grumpy cul-de-sacs of his grace. Amen. All right. My email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. What do we learn about God? Let's move into the second point. I always do that. Every time I do that little email thing where I kid you about Robert, by the way, first of all, he's working at kids' church right now, so he never gets to hear that joke. I always do it when he's away. And third, I don't want to give you the impression that I get grumpy emails. I don't. I don't. You guys are wonderful. You give me sweet emails. 
Uh, you don't. I just, it's a joke, okay? Because every time somebody comes up to me, I'm like, Brad, are people really mad at you? I'm like, no, just, it's just, I'm just being silly. Okay, all right, let's keep going. What do we learn about God? Oh, friends, I think this is the glorious truth of this chapter. We learn that he's faithful to fulfill his promise. He makes a promise. He keeps it. God is good to his word. He's faithful to fulfill his promise. But friends, here's a challenge now. A challenge of understanding his promises and how they apply to us. It would be a mistake if we looked at this chapter and we zeroed in on just Isaac's arrival and Isaac's birth and then interpreted that as broad application to everything in our life that we sense God should do for us, okay? Because that's the way kind of the false prosperity gospel looks at things like this in the Old Testament and across the whole Bible. They see God powerfully bringing to pass something that he has promised to do And without understanding the grand scope of narrative history, we just assume, okay, I think God should do this for me. And because God is the type of God who fulfills his promise, then he is now, he must do this for me. No, friends, that's that's not what we should look at or think or draw as a conclusion what we should when we look at this. Friends, we need to realize that there's something much greater than the answering of individual prayers or the bringing about of temporary comfort or blessing in the birth of Abraham. Friends, ultimately, and we'll look at this in just a second, ultimately, God is showing us that he is good for his promise that he promised back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden that he will bring a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Friends, this is not an individualized promise. This is a grand scope of the narrative of God's redemptive plan where God is displaying to his people in the nations that I will bring about the banishment and the defeat of all evil. And this temporary son Isaac is pointing to the eternal son Jesus who once and for all will vanquish all sin devil, and hell. And so when we look at this, we need to be careful not to overly personalize this promise, but now we can stand on the character of God that no matter what happens to me in my temporary desires, I'm standing on a God who has promised to bring to pass his sovereign plan, and all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And friends, do you see how this frees us from this world? If God is bringing about his plan, if he's good to his word, then friends, I don't have any need to fear this world. Take my life now. Let cancer come. Let the terrorists do their work. God can stop them if he wants, but even if he doesn't, there is something worse than death. It's separation from God. So I know we can stand on his faithfulness that he will vanquish evil. He will save his people. He is good for his promise. And so regardless of what this world can do to me, I am safe on the firm foundation of Jesus. Oh, friends, that is so so comforting. Secondly, we learn about God that he's jealous for his glory, which eliminates our boasting. This is an important truth for us. We, we tend to come to the Bible as, as sort of man-centered by nature, but we would do well to come to the Bible in a God-centered way. 
Why did Abraham have to wait 25 years for the promise of this son? Is it because the Trinity was, you know, working out their plan and needed, you know, God needed uh, to come up with the right words to say? Because God, you know, was going back and forth in a sort of, you know, trading baskets in the fourth corner battle against the enemy. And finally, Jesus hits a three-pointer and the buzzer, you know, and God barely wins in the end? No, friends. God waited 25 years to make Abraham and Sarah get to such an old age that nobody could look back on it and say that it was them. He's bringing about by his sovereign providence a situation where when it happens... Nobody can get any credit except for God. Friends, do you realize he still works that way? Have you ever read Judges chapter 6 and 7, the story of Gideon? That's your assignment this afternoon. Read it. Read Gideon chapter 6 and 7. Gideon's this warrior, this leader of God's people in Judges chapter 6 and 7. And he starts off with like 32,000 guys. And he's fighting these cats called the Midianites. And God says, ah, a little too many people. Let's send about 22,000 of them away right now. Boom, gone. There's like 10,000. And God says, really, this is actually in the Bible. Take them down to the river, and the ones that drink like a dog, you know, like lap up the water with their tongues. I don't know who would do that. You know, send them away. But the ones that pull the water with their hands, those are the ones. And it ended up being 300 men. And so he starts with an army of 32,000, and God dwindles it down to 300 just so he could show that he can bring his victory to pass no matter what the human odds. Friends, why is that story in the Bible? Why did God wait 25 years? Because God didn't have enough mojo to bring it to pass like his plan A got thwarted? No, because God is jealous for his glory and that brings us to a place where it eliminates human boasting and friends God works the same way with us you may be in a situation right now where God is weaning you from any opportunity to take credit that's what he did with Abraham and that's what he does with his people because the most loving thing that God could do is bring glory to himself which is the only true thing that satisfies And then finally, let's wrap it up with looking at this third question. What do we learn about God's plan of redemption in Christ? Well, I mentioned it here just a moment ago. Ultimately, the promise of Isaac points us toward Jesus. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and God spoke to them after the fall, and he says, I will bring a seed of this woman who will crush who will destroy the seed of this serpent. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, is looking forward to that day when God will bring that seed. And in Galatians chapter 3, we won't take the time to read it, we see the Apostle Paul interpreting that Old Testament promise. And he says to us basically that all of these Old Testament sons and all these Old Testament leaders are just temporary pointers. They're flawed, great, but flawed men who become a pointer to the one who will come, Jesus, who is the true seed, the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. 
And so even Isaac, as we'll learn next week, Wayne is going to be preaching out of Genesis 22, where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. We see Isaac as being a pointer to what God will do in Christ with his son Jesus on the cross. So ultimately, the promise of Isaac points to Jesus. And secondly and finally, what we learn about God's plan of redemption is that really, friends, there are only two ways to live. Either enslaved to sin in our own human strength and means or free in Christ. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 22. And again, always let the Scripture interpret itself. So the New Testament, Paul in Galatians 4 is going to interpret, explain for us the meaning of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 21 and this whole episode with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. He's going to interpret for us what this meant that God, or that, that Abraham and Sarah would concoct this plan to use Hagar to bring about this plan that they thought God couldn't accomplish on himself and then ultimately God is good on his promise and causes the son to come through Sarah. So listen to, to the Apostle Paul's interpretation of this event in Genesis 21 from Galatians 4, starting in verse 22. For it is written that Sarah had, or, I'm sorry, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave, it's Hagar, was born according to the flesh, meaning Ishmael. So that's, human conniving brought that about. While the son of the free woman, that's Sarah, and Isaac, was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, the law, meaning Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery, for she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. These people that are still under this old covenant of, of works and law. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. So that's quoting from Isaiah 54, where God is saying, No, I'm going to bring a son when there seems to be no possibility of a son, and through him is going to come freedom and joy. Verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So what Paul is saying is that if you're in Christ, you are in Christ because of the promise and the work of God alone, not by your own means. And people that, that don't know God in that way, who have not trusted in Christ, will persecute you for trusting in God and not yourself. And that little moment when, when Ishmael was mocking Isaac, it was a sort of picture of how those who are brought about by their own strength will hate and persecute those who trust in God and His free grace. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the sl slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's two ways to live. You can either be a son of the promise, 
like Isaac. And you can be a child of God because of God's grace alone. Not because you worked out a plan and decided to do better. But you can either be a son or daughter of the promise because God in his grace made a way when it was impossible for you to be free from your sin. God rescued you. God fulfilled his word. God did it all. Or you can be locked into human conniving to try and make yourself right with God, which is represented by Ishmael and this plan between Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And he's saying that there are only two ways to live. Jesus puts it this way in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so what is this obscure story telling us in the Old Testament? That it is God alone who saves. We can't engineer the working out of what we hope to happen. We are completely dependent on God and His grace. And when He fulfills His word and He saves us, friends, we are free to live a life where we give ourselves away for His glory and our joy. And now what can man do to me, right? You see what living as a, as, a, as a person who's trusting in God's miraculous power to do whatever he pleases, then, friends, if God can do that, then he's got the rest of my life, right? We sing this Jesus, firm foundation. If God can save me, if God can bring about his miraculous power and, and fulfill his promise through Christ, then, friends, what can this world do to me? It frees me from worrying about my future. And the same for us. Which way are you living, friends? The son of a slave, trying to manipulate God, conniving your way into his good graces? Friends, that will never work. Or are you the child of the promise? What does that mean? It means to trust in what God has done in Christ. That we are all sinners, that God is holy and gracious, and that our sin has cut us off separated us from him, rendered us completely unable to do anything in and of ourselves. We're dead. We're unable. We're washed up. We're like a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman trying to conceive a child on our own. It is impossible. And our only hope is God in his mercy, fulfilling his promise, giving us the gift of faith and repentance so that we would turn from trusting in ourselves and our own schemes and look to Christ on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, bearing the wrath of God, absorbing it, extinguishing it, satisfying it, and then rising again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and all of its consequences and now commanding all of us not to trust in our own ordinary means but to trust in Him alone for our right standing with God and then be free to be on mission for him for the rest of our lives until we see him face to face. Which way are you living, friends? God is calling you now. He's commanding you to live free, not enslaved. Do that even now. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we, as we come to a time where we respond to your word through worship through communion through repentance through prayer 
Lord, I, I pray that you would show us this beautiful, eternal gospel truth in this chapter. You are good to your word. And your word is that you alone can save. You alone can save. Father, there I'm sure people in this room who are trying to save themselves through human effort. God, would you give them eyes to see and a, and a heart to receive the free, sovereign mercy in Christ. And Lord, there are some of us that have already received this free grace that trying to continue on just grabbing a hold of our lives and conniving and worried about the future. Lord, free us from that self-absorption. Lift our heads. Put us on mission. Compel us to be lights and witnesses of this grace that we have received. For the glory of your name. For the joy of our lives. And the salvation of the lost. I pray that you do these things. In Jesus' name.